Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find Amazon links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show. And if you do it that way, a little bit comes back to the show. And you'll also find a donate button if you'd like to give something directly to the Jazz Session and uh, help keep these interviews coming at you. If you're interested in becoming an underwriter of the Jazz Session, you can contact me via the contact page at thejazzsession.com, and I'll tell you how to do that. My guest today is saxophonist John Irabagan. He's got a new album called Foxy on the Hot Cup Records label. It is one extended 80-minute improvisation, and uh, it begins like this. My guest is uh, saxophonist and composer John Arabagon. He has a brand new album out on uh, Hot Cup Records, which it's very difficult to hold in your hand and look at without getting a nice chuckle because the cover art, like all Hot Cup releases, is just brilliant. Uh, the album is called Foxy and uh, features uh, Barry Altschul on drums and Peter Brendler on bass. And it's uh, my pleasure to welcome John to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, great to be here. Thanks, Jason. Well, let's uh, let's start right off with, I guess, one of the obvious questions, and and ask uh, why you recorded this particular record. Uh, it's uh, it's a kind of statement, musical statement that you don't hear too much of anymore. So maybe you could just tell people uh, what the record is, and uh, and then talk about why you wanted to do it. Right. Well, uh, the record Foxy is um, an eighty-minute continuous sixteen-bar uh, form that. Uh, I play on tenor saxophone, and there's bass and drums on it. And I basically solo the entire time, along with uh, with Barry and Peter. And uh, it's as an extended tenor saxophone solo lineage has been something that's interested me for a long time, probably about ten years or something. You know, listening to Coltrane play "Chasing the Train" and things like that. And um, I've actually 
performed I've done this this kind of project where we've done it about ten times where Peter the bass player and I play with a different drummer um, and, and we've done it like ten times like ten different gigs where we've picked a standard and played the one standard for the entire set so this kind of thing has been brewing and growing and I've kind of figured out where I wanted it to go with, with using different drummers and so like I felt like it was time at this point after 10 of those gigs and trying to figure things out to, to record it and, and document it so it just kind of as luck would have it Barry Alcho was free and he's been one of my favorite drummers and percussionists since I got into creative music and so I guess the stars aligned and I was able to get him to uh, record this record with us What is it about uh, Barry's playing uh, that attracts you and that you thought would be good for this this recording? Well, I mean, I've been aware of Barry's playing since uh, the the very first DCM record I ever bought was Circle with him and Dave Holland and Anthony Braxton and Chick Corea. And shortly thereafter, I got the Paul Blay trio recording Closer and Barry's on both of those records. And just, just the energy and openness, but also focused aspects of his playing like he's definitely played with some very straight ahead players and you can tell that when he when he plays you can hear it you can hear the the lineage and the tradition of 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 where jazz came from so for me as a as an artist that's trying to grow i'm i'm interested in in that aspect as well as kind of the pushing and switching thing so it it was kind of like when i when i realized that it was time to record this project for me just in the back of my head i'm like this is Barry is the perfect person to record with, and it worked out. talk about what's required uh, of, uh, I guess we'll start with the rhythm section, and I want to ask the same question about, about you, but what's required in order to make uh, a single statement this long work? What do you need the rhythm section to do for all that time? Well, I mean, this particular, like I said, we've recorded, or I mean, I've performed this kind of extended standard thing almost a dozen times in live situations, and I've had different drummers for almost all the gigs, and it's been funny, like, sometimes I'll give absolutely no direction and just say, like, okay, we're going to play, uh, 
you know, softly as in the morning sunrise for the entire set, so for like 15 minutes or something like that. So just do what you want. And so it's been very interesting and a huge learning experience for me to see when you give someone that kind of freedom, but it's within one extended 50-minute piece, what kind of avenues you can take it in. And um, a lot of, several of the drummers have gone in a lot of different ways. So, but when you go into the recording studio and you sit down and there's going to be a document, I kind of made sure to talk to Barry and Peter about it, and we kind of, it was a proactive decision that it basically swings for most of it, and it, it's, a, it's, it's pretty straight ahead for a lot of it. Um, and, and it does venture outside of that realm, but for the most part, the, the, the 16-bar form is going and it was it was an active conscious decision to kind of stay in the swing thing because you know we've I've played a couple other gigs with with this kind of idea and it's gone totally free it's gone into like a uh, more like funk or R&B part for a while so this was an active choice that we wanted to stay swinging for most of it so I, I sat down and told Barry and Peter that and so that was kind of our blueprint that we worked with for this record. I'm too young to have seen uh, John Coltrane play, but I've certainly talked to a lot of people who who saw him play and would describe when he would do these extended improvisations, it, describe it as, as, and I know this is a kind of a trite phrase, but almost like a religious experience, some sort of you know, kind of transcendental experience um, where where people were just kind of washed over with emotion. And you're approaching this from the other end. Uh, I wonder what the experience was like for you from kind of a, an emotional or mental standpoint to, to keep this up for... Uh, for one of these extended improvisations. Right. Well, um, yeah, I've definitely read the stories and heard the things about people getting the C train do the thing for an extra long time. Uh, for me, it's kind of, it's this kind of, this project kind of grew out of, I have a record with Mike Pride. It's just drums and sax, and it's called I Don't Hear Nothing But the Blues, and it's out on the Loyal label. But we kind of got together and we were doing some, some, jam, some sessions at his place where we were trying to develop something. Um, for an extended period of time that wasn't coming out of like interstellar space or some of the other uh, drum and sax duo things and so what Mike and I came up with on that record is one about 48 minute continuous piece that kind of uses uh, different genres and different motifs as the as the basis for it so we switch really quick between a bunch of these, these different things and we hang on to the motifs and the thing that we play at the beginning can come back like 40 minutes later so that's kind of like a thing that Mike and I developed about a year and a half ago, and we've been playing and we've been developing that. And so that kind of thing, I, I realized, okay, well, the continuous playing thing, it, it's its cool, so let me see if I can try to, because I, I enjoy playing in that kind of context where it's just continuous and it, and it and it's additive and it keeps growing. And so I realized, I'm like, okay, I want to try to do this in like a more straight ahead, like using standard format uh, kind of way. And so I realized, oh, wait, but that's what, that's kind of like what, what Train and these guys were doing. So I started checking that out a lot, and I realized that it's slightly, I'm coming from it from a slightly different point of view because of my work with Mike. This uh, kind of motivic, uh, additive, continuous thing is kind of part of the mix there. And I'm not sure if I'm making any sense, but yeah, that's you, part of... Will you say a little more about what you mean when you say additive, just to help folks understand what that means? Yeah, I mean, uh, for the I don't hear nothing but the blues record. We we start with one uh, single motif, which was not prepared before beforehand. It was kind of, it was improvised right there, and then out of that motif uh, uh, grew a second motif. 
And then we start using that. So it, it became the second thing. And so we start using the second motif as the basis for another one. And so eventually there's like four or five going on, but we can jump back and use the first one in its original state, and it, can co and it comes back in after this fifth motif happens. So eventually we have like 30 or 40 motifs that we're trying to keep going all at the same time that can grow into the 41st one or can become or can stay the same and return in its original form. So that's kind of like where Mike and I were working from, and so this project with Barry is almost, it's, it's almost an extension of that, but also putting the jazz feeling and tradition and like song forms and bringing those things into the mix of that as well. That sounds like a, a pretty incredible mental challenge, the idea of having all of those motifs going on, and somehow you have to remember the thing that you just made up that day that happened right. however many minutes ago. <laughs> that sounds right. pretty tough. I mean, um, yeah, Mike and I have played, like, a, a, yeah, we've played about two dozen gigs, trying to, and so, like, sometimes it's more successful than others, <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> when I listen back to the recording I, I, I made of the gig, I'm like, oh, man, I never brought that one... The, the 17th motif, I never brought it back, so I need to work on. So it's it's kind of a it's a mental challenge for me, and it keeps me active. In, you know, keeps me really active in what's going on in the music. And so I, I just me personally, I like those kinds of games and um, multiplicity things that are going on. Like it kind of keeps me interested when I'm playing. Yeah, and you've kind of anticipated my my follow up question to that, which is. Uh... It, you often hear people really describe jazz or improvised music as a as a music of being in the moment, really present in the moment. And uh, sometimes it sounds like that is like it's almost happening too fast to think about. And yet, in this case, it sounds like thought is a big part of of what's happening in this process. Uh, not only thought, but memory of what happened before. It's not just going into the air and disappearing, but you're you're actively trying to recall things that happened and fit them in in some new place in the improvisation. That sounds a little different than, uh, I guess, what I'm used to hearing people describe when they talk about kind of long stretches of extended improvisation. Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't really set out at the at the beginning of my my career to to make the 
two out of my first four records as a leader, like this kind of extended tenor saxophone thing, but kind of the research and, and the people that I've been playing with and all the work that I've been putting in kind of lends itself to this kind of format in a way because uh, because of these games and these mental hurdles that I'm trying and physical hurdles that I'm trying to uh, get into my music and overcome. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, John, can you, uh, just to help fill in a little background for folks uh, who might uh, just be hearing you for the first time on this show, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, kind of where you uh, where you grew up and where you first started getting seriously into music? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in Chicago. I was born in the north suburbs of Chicago and um, played in the, you know, the school jazz band and things like that and didn't take it that seriously. I had a really good teacher, band director in high school that kind of... Uh, help show me some things and, 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 and challenge me on some things. So I went to college in the city of Chicago. I didn't go too far from home. I went to DePaul University and got a music business degree um, and was playing at night but doing accounting classes and economics classes and stuff during the day. Um, and then after I finished college, I just kind of kept playing in the city for a year and then realized, well, you know, I kind of want to study with, you know, I want to kind of move to New York and study with, uh, with Dick Oates, who was one of my big idols at the time. And so I kind of went, I went online and I found out he was teaching at Manhattan School of Music. So I applied and I got in and I went, uh, I moved to New York in 2001 and went to there for two years. And when I was finishing up there with my master's in jazz performance, I realized that like, I just, I'd been spending a lot of my time in the practice room and a lot of my time with people from the school there. So I didn't really have that many connections outside of the school moving to New York. You know, it's a, t- it's a tough place to, to move to when you don't know anybody that's, that's here. So uh, I found that there was an opening at the Juilliard program uh, and the jazz program there. So I kind of I try, I tried out for that, and I got in. So I spent the next two years getting an artist diploma at Juilliard in the jazz program. And uh, during those two years, I'm like, okay, well, when this school is done, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with the whole school thing. And so... I've got to make sure that these two years I'm spending time like trying to meet people outside of the programs. So I spent those two years like really, you know, going out to Brooklyn and jamming with people and doing some sessions and trying to meet new people and study with other people outside of the school. And so it was from those those experiences that I met uh, Mappa Elliott, who runs Hot Cup, and uh, he was starting a band at the time um, with uh, trumpeter Peter Evans and drummer Kevin Shea and so the four of us started playing all the time and uh, we became known as this band called Mostly Other People Do the Killing and uh, we've we're you know seven years later we're still playing and we're still trying to grow and develop and challenge ourselves so that's kind of been a good uh, home base as far as uh, like having a, a group to, to, to uh, workshop things with and so outside of, outside of that started playing it with, with more people. Um, there's a guitarist, John Lumbaum, who also released a record on High Cup. He, I, I've been friends with him for about 16 years, 17 years since the Chicago days, so I still play in his group. Um, through Moppet and Kevin, I met Mary Halverson, and uh, we just recorded a new quintet record of her music that I'm really excited about. Yeah, she was. And, uh, uh, I just interviewed her the other day, and she'll be on the show just about a week before you, I think. So. Oh, right. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to be a part of that project. So I'm basically just trying to uh, be here in the city and try to grow and expand my own music, but also uh, keep the perspective and the 
you know, the, the input of being a sideman so that I can try to glean some things from other people and other successful leaders. Am I right from uh, from what I've read about you? It seems like you've also done a fair amount of sideman work, kind of outside of the the jazz world too, right? Yeah, I mean, so the, the thing about Chicago was that I mean, it's a, it's a huge town, and there's plenty of chances to play. The musician pool is a little bit smaller than it is here in New York, so there's actually a lot of opportunities there to play a lot of different kinds of music. And so those five years where I was playing gigs in Chicago, like it was it was incredibly varied. It, you know, like it was. It was Brazilian music one night, and then big band music the next night, and then like a straight ahead jazz gig, and then a pop gig, and then you know weddings, and then like avant garde jazz, and and then like you know a sting cover band the next night, you know. So like it was, it it, it led me to investigate a lot of different styles and try to be authentic in all of them, and so I think that kind of thinking and grounding is uh, pushing through. <laughs> pushing through to you today still because I like trying to be authentic in a bunch of different things. And that's kind of what's kept me interested in playing music is the, is the variance of it. John, why was the uh, the academic side of things important to you? Um, well, to, to be honest, like moving to New York, I kind of used school as, as home base to, um, you know, like looking back, I didn't know this at the time, but looking back, it was like, okay, I wanted to have school as something that was stable, that I could be developing my music, and it was encouraged to practice, you know, and, but at the same time, it, it helped me meet some people and, like, get me acclimated to being here in New York, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the times that I had, the, the amount of time that I was in school, but looking back, it was more important to be part of a scene and to meet people and to play and try to develop your own music and help develop other people's music too. What was your experience like uh, studying with Dick Oates, someone that you'd really looked up to and you got a chance to study with? I mean, he I mean Dick changed my whole <laughs> he changed my whole thinking. He he fixed a lot of things that were wrong with my playing. He uh helped open up some possibilities for composition for me. He it, I mean those two years were a huge 
huge de- developmental period for me, uh, thanks in a large part to Dick and to Dave Liebman, who I took a combo with and, and uh, took a class with. Yeah, and funnily enough, I interviewed Dave Lieben this morning um, <laughs> about all his 8 million new projects. And uh, <laughs> and then I had f- remembered, although I didn't have a chance to ask him about it uh, in my research for you, which I'd done previously, that you guys mm-hmm. had studied together. Um, and Dave was saying that one of the things uh, – I had asked him a question about his work in education, which he's been involved in for three decades now. And, and he said that uh, he thought in many ways – the kind of academic institutions had replaced the old like apprenticeship or journeyman apprenticeship system um, that used to exist back when when he was coming up, uh, and right. then, you know he felt that that was important. That in many ways those those times you know spent in the practice room or spent you know playing in the groups run by the school were kind of the equivalent of what what he had had. I wonder what your take on it was, kind of coming through it in the era he was well, describing. Yeah, this is actually something that my friends and I have, have been thinking about and talking about a lot lately. You know, it's it's traditionally been like, okay, well, you know, you get you get really good by playing a ton of jam sessions and practicing at home and then going out at night and, and hope hopefully somebody that's famous and established will hear you and then you'll go out there and, and you'll get to play gigs with them and then you'll tour the world with that with that older established musician and then and then after you've been through that "Quote unquote university," then you're you're able to go out and do your own thing, and people will know you. But the, the problem with that in in 2010, you know, in today's world, is that th- there's not a lot of those those massive musicians are not necessarily out there as much as they were, and if they are, they, they've got either an established band or they've already found like their their younger band that they're playing with. So. Uh, you know, we're not going to be sitting around like waiting by the phone, waiting for someone who's established to call up. And so, you know, it's kind of like a proactive situation where we're like, if that call comes in, I'm super happy to do it. You know, I'm glad that I got to play with Kenny Barron and Victor Lewis and Rufus Reed on my Observer record that came out last year. And that was a huge learning experience for me. And it was, uh, it was a dream come true getting to play with the Stan Gebsen section. But, I don't, is, you know, is Rufus Reed going to put a band together and am I going to get to be in that band? I'm not sure. So I'm not going to be waiting around for that. And so because of, it's been an active choice for us to be like, okay, if that thing comes in, great. If it's not, which it just might not happen, for, for, it can't happen for everybody. So if it doesn't happen for me, what can I do in the meantime to help develop something on my own? And so it's just been a it's a it's a case where the the apprenticeship thing is something that's valuable, and if you're lucky enough to to be a part of it, it, w- it will help out. But it's I don't, I don't feel like in 2010 that it's a viable thing to just sit around and wait for that to happen.
it seems like uh, at the same time as the apprenticeship system has kind of gone on the wane, one thing that has changed is that you used to need those established masters because they had recording contracts, and your only way to get your playing documented was to kind of ride their coattails onto the one of the labels they were on. But nowadays, it seems like the access to distributing your music, you know, for free on the internet and so on and so forth, is is so much broader than it used to be that maybe in some ways that that kind of gatekeeper function doesn't really need to be served anymore by those established artists. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, t- I totally agree that the whole quote unquote death of the major record label thing—it's actually a super exciting time for musicians. There's a lot of possibilities with the internet and downloads. And, you know, it's still shaking out right now, but there, there are a lot of possibilities out there, and I think it's a good time to be part of the scene. I mean, the other thing about the apprenticeship thing, of course, it, it, it would be a valuable experience because you're playing with someone who has a lot of experience and history underneath their belt. And so in that regard, it's not... Because music is a little bit more easily distributed, um, that part is not being replaced. You know, you still have to get that experience and you still have to play a ton to hone your craft in. You still have to find a way to do that, but it might not necessarily be with getting to play with one person for four years, you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, John, uh, keeping in mind that this show will air in about three weeks, uh, can you talk about mm-hmm. some things that are coming up for you? Uh, well, let's see. Three weeks. So that's Okay, so that's after my release show. We're doing a CD release show in September on September 14th at Cornelia Street for this for the Foxy record. So if it comes out in three weeks. It'll be after that. Um, so, uh, most of the other people do the killing. We're, we're playing in Finland coming up in November, and uh, we're really excited about that. Um, Is that at a festival got, or uh, how's that? Yeah, it's, it's at the Tampere uh, Jazz Festival, which we're we're excited about. Um, Mary Halverson's records coming out in October, and we're doing a CD release show on September 30th at Barbez at 10 p.m. Excited about that. Um, I'm in 2011. I'm I'm still working on it, but I'm trying to book this uh, the Foxy Trio, and we're going to try to hopefully you know play. I'm working on something in Philly. I'm trying to find some stuff over there in Europe, and uh, I'm just I'm just really excited to get to play with Barry, and tr- I'm going to try to do that as much as possible in the next year. And it must be uh, a little easier to get those set lists together, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do, because I might just take those uh, ten tunes that we've done and maybe just start rotating them. <laughs> That's <great. laughs> We'll see what happens. <laughs> My guest is uh, saxophonist and composer John Arabagon. He uh, has a number of excellent records, all of which I highly recommend, and the most recent of which uh, is called Foxy, which features uh, Barry Altschul on drums and Peter Brendler on bass. It's on the Hot Cup Records label, and uh, John, it's been a real pleasure to, to talk to you about your music and your playing, and uh, thank you for taking the time to do it. All right, thanks, Jason.
is music from John Arabagon and his new album Foxy on the Hot Cup Records label. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find a donate button if you'd like to give something directly to the show. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for recording the theme music for this program. They've got a new record out called Farcical Built for Six. You'll find it at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Now please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.